the the need of to understand um, that black women are not protected uh, is is super highlighted when I'm thinking about my own black daughter and all the ways that black women are not protected over and over and over again. That 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 fuels my work. Welcome to Work Like a Mother, sharing real conversations with inspiring women juggling work, life, and motherhood. I'm Bridget Garsh, co-founder of Neighbor Schools, and today I'm really excited to chat with Dr. Joya Creer-Perry, MD, president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative. The mission of the National Birth Equity Collaborative is to create solutions that optimize Black, maternal, and infant health through training, policy advocacy, research, and community-centered collaboration. Their vision is that every Black baby will celebrate a healthy first birthday. During each of my two pregnancies, I worried about a thousand different things. But something I never considered was how the color of my skin might impact health outcomes for me or my baby. Unfortunately, Black women in our country don't share that luxury. Across the board, Black women experience unacceptably poor maternal health outcomes and are three to four times more likely to experience a pregnancy-related death. Our guest today, Dr. Joya Creer-Perry, has dedicated her career to changing all of that. This episode is a must listen, especially for those of us who have had the privilege not to consider race during our motherhood journeys. Dr. Joya always knew she wanted to be a doctor and assumed she would follow in her father's footsteps as an ophthalmologist. Until that is, she got pregnant. That experience shifted her perspective and she went on to become an OBGYN. Then she had her second son who arrived prematurely but her only significant risk factor, being black. Following her birth experience, Dr. Joya practiced as an OBGYN for many years, helping black women bring healthy babies into this world. Looking to scale up her impact and create systemic lasting change, Dr. Joya went on to create the National Birth Equity Collaborative. My first question for you is, did you always know that you wanted to be in maternal health? No, I think um, I got pregnant my, uh, in college and um, was looking for a, uh, I was pre-med and, and supposed, my father's an ophthalmologist, so I was supposed to be going into ophthalmology, um, but I couldn't find a, a woman gynecologist. They were all booked. And so I was like, I should do this instead of ophthalmology. <laughs> and then the more I got into um, medical school and um, got to actually work with patients, I really enjoyed working with women, with birthing people. And the beauty of childbirth is so amazing. Um, and at that moment, the baby could be anything. It's like an omnipotent cell, right? It could be anything. So it's just, it's hard to um, compare cataract surgery to the birth of a, of a new human <laughs> being. Right? So, yeah. How did your dad react to that news? You know, the irony is that at the time he said, oh, you'll, he did act like he didn't care. Um, but I have a baby sister who's now an ophthalmology resident. He's super excited. So I realized he was probably very sad when I did not choose to go into ophthalmology, but he acted very stoic at the time, like it didn't matter. Wow. Uh, 
I guess that that's part of parenthood, right? Uh-huh. Putting your own feelings. Oh yeah. Second. And, and so it's constantly trying to figure that out in your own parenting. Like where are the places that you're putting your own wants and desires on your children and how do you make room for them to figure themselves out? So you were in medical school while, when you got pregnant. I was in actually undergrad. My daughter was six months old when I started medical school. And then I had a second child, my last, well, I was aiming for my last year of medical school, but he was born early. So he was born at the end of my junior year of medical school. What was it like juggling your studies while having two kids during medical school? I mean, I don't, I guess I don't know how not to do that. It's been my only existence, you know, having a baby at 21 changes your life. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, um, we go to class. I was always in class every day. I'm a person that's an oral learner. So I, I didn't miss, I didn't skip class. And then I would um, come home and feed her and take care of her and put her to bed and then start studying when she went to sleep and studying until three o'clock in the morning or so. And then get a few hours of a night's rest and start over again. Well, I guess at that age, uh, the baby's age, they're not sleep. You're not getting that much sleep anyhow. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, my <laughs> friends, you know, a lot of medical students, you're still only, I was only, you know, 22, 23. So other folks were going out partying and I was home being a wife and mom. Wow. And then when did you have your third child? I got remarried when I was 35. And so um, my son, uh, we were doing fertility treatments and um, uh, we had two embryos left. We had done a few rounds of in vitro. And so we were like, well, we can, I said, I could try my old uterus one more time, or we could try a a younger uterus. So we had a gestational carrier and our son was born. He's nine. So I have a 27, 24 and nine year old. So who's, who are you trying to get into the shower today? The nine year old. The nine year old. Evidently, water is a, um, it's, it's like a repellent of all, it's a, it's a horrible thing to have to bathe. I don't know why. It's such a, <laughs> such a burden. I feel like it must clean. go through these ebbs and flows too. Like my mm-hmm. toddler went through this phase where he hated the water and would not get in the bath. And now we're in the phase where he only wants to be in the bath and it's a <laughs> battle to get him out. And you're trying it's to- It's all about him. control. So, you know, once you figure out that the entire point of childhood is them trying to get control, it's like, okay, you have a whole life ahead of you where you're not going to be in control. <laughs> That's very true. That's very Getting used true. to that. You're not going to run much. You better pick your battles. Right. Yes. That is very true. Picking yeah, battles yeah. is the name of the game. These and they, days. they and children do not have not figured that out. So the everything is a battle. Everything is a is a battle. Yeah. For yes. For control. I want the tub. I don't want the tub. I want the shower. I want a shower hand. Like all of these are like so unnecessary. Yes, that yeah. is very true. Yeah. So then you after medical school, did you practice as an OBGYN? Yeah, I did. I was in private practice up until um, 2012. But even through then, um, I um, so I had my own office. I brought in a couple of doctors to work with me. And then after Katrina, I started doing public health and I still also practiced um, part time um, and then stopped practicing in 2014. So is that when you started National Birth Equity Collaborative? So we, oh, we started in 2015. So for a year, I was the CEO of um, the Birthing Project and then started my own nonprofit in 2015. What was that experience like? Did you know 
what you were getting yourself into to start a nonprofit from no, scratch? That's really not. I mean, it was really just something to do till I could find a real job. Um, I didn't think it would become a thing. <laughs> if I had um, been doing public health and I was like, ah, well, we'll, you know, we'll do this until I can figure out if I can get back in academia or into a public health mm-hmm. department. Um, so it was not, the goal wasn't to build this big organization. It was really something to do till I could figure out what I was going to do. Um, and then it became a real thing. <laughs> How big is the organization now? Um, we're up to, I think, 12 staff. Um, so yeah, it's been rapidly and recently it's been, you know, rapidly growing. It's, um, for a while we were, uh, acting as if we had 12 staff. It was really just two of us and a part-time person. So it's weird now to see all the work that we were all doing and mm-hmm. holding. Uh, I mean, I just, before you was on a call with the Louisiana Health Department, I've had, we've had a contract with them for five years. And for the first time the call, I didn't have to talk that much. And there were only, I had four staff members on the call. I was like, this is nice. <laughs> <laughs> You have maybe slightly fewer hats to wear. (laughs) And, you know, it was good because it it brought what I needed to do, which was to talk about framing and future and not the, like, scope of work, like the little details around quarter one, we're going to do this and that and all that stuff. So it's nice to not have to get into those parts of the conversation. What are you working on with them? You've worked with them for five years. Is that Yeah. I mean, originally their director of maternal and child health wanted to work on anti-racism inside of the health department. So we originally started with them. They created a heat um, health equity action team. So it's people from each part of the maternal child health division. Um, And uh, so I support, we support their, strategic planning. We did a survey of all of the staff across MCH for the state to see what, what their baseline level of understanding around anti-racism was. And then we built structure around that. So for example, we learned in the survey that um, the area that had the worst birth outcomes, many of the staff, when you ask them, does racism impact health? They said no. So it's not a coincidence that the places that have worse outcomes um, are in places that people are not have not had um, conversations yet about the impact of racism on health, and they're still really working from a framework of blaming and shaming the patients for their outcomes. Mm-hmm. And these are people who do home visiting, so they're in folks' homes, mm-hmm. um, and they still perceive that the reason that the, the that they have poor outcomes is the choices that they're making without looking at the structural analysis. So. We spent some time really um, when we do um, racial equity trainings. It was great for us to practice too, honestly, because, you know, you can say, oh, we can train you about Mm -hmm. racism, but people have it as a theory. They haven't tried. So we've actually tried. It's been working pretty well. Um, uh, We go to rural Louisiana and have some home visitors and some WIC folks. And I mean, that's the heart of the beast for us inside of maternal and child health. And um, one of my favorite moments, one of the, there's a white woman who came, we do two hour sessions. We'll usually do one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and she came to both. So when she came that afternoon, I told her, I said, my jokes don't change. I'm going to tell the same stories. <laughs> you already heard all this. And she said to me, this is like church for me. I need this. I need to hear this. And so, so many folks um, really want to learn and want to, and they know something is off about this idea of blaming Black people and shaming. And, um, and so for them, it's freeing to really have an opportunity to talk to as a rural Southern white person, mm-hmm. knowing that none of this, uh, that these were not truths and having an opportunity to have that conversation is freeing. So I love that part of the work. There are people who 
of course, still fight you about it um, and, and still want to hold on to their false beliefs. But the majority of folks um, really seem and really are excited. And and then it translates into different ways they show up for work. You know, um, we've seen increased uh, breastfeeding in those same communities um, that we didn't have before, the same way that um, the WIC director in Shreveport, which is the area that had the worst outcomes, and they didn't believe that racism was was where I went to medical school, where I had my son early, right? So uh, where the hospital was named Confederate General in the 60s and 70s. So um, it is important for us to really just those same nurses uh, and WIC providers who were really resistant to having community members do breastfeeding support and um, had created a lot of barriers for black and brown people to have online breastfeeding support, um, stop doing that. And they really made room for uh, this kind of non-hierarchical, because like, why do you need a master's degree in nutrition to support breastfeeding? Like that was never, that was like never a truth, right? Right, so we right. created it inside of the system, right? And then we were turning people away who've been supporting their sisters and their cousins and their friends with their breastfeeding journeys. I mean, you honestly wouldn't do that in a white community. You wouldn't say you can only support breastfeeding if you have a master's in nutrition. But when you're working in black and brown communities, we make up these false rules and mm. and ways to police um, our ability to have information and freedom and choice around our bodies. So, The work you do is so inspiring. Oh, I just read a little bit about uh, you and, and your work. What mm-hmm sparked your interest what what got you so passionate about this yeah I mean so many stories I got pregnant my uh, in college and um and then the birth of my son um who I was also in medical school he was born early and at the time my only risk factor was black being black so I believed that the reason that he was born early was because there was something about me being black so much so that I have an aunt my mother's sister who had a baby early and I thought, oh, it was just something black people, you know, I got it from her. Mm. We must have some black teen that makes us do this. Um, and you might've seen recently in the New York Times, there's an article that preterm birth has gone down since COVID and they're trying to figure out why. And there's some theories around us not having to go to work. Like people can be home. And mm-hmm. even if it's, you know, like countries that have a, a paid um, leave for, for pregnant people have better outcomes than we do. So we're paying people to stay home right now, right? So we're paying people right. and you don't see that same level of decrease in preterm birth in places that um, people have a lot higher um, essential workers. Like I say, in New Orleans where um, there's, you know, versus say DC where people can have jobs where they can work from home. From home. Um, and so really tying kind of um, the exposure to job and exposure to microaggressions and, and racism to premature birth, not looking just for some kind of toxin in the, you know, like you, that your right, cervix, some external. Your collagen, yeah, your collagen is, is, is flimsy. And so therefore you can't hold a baby in. Like that's what we've been, that's been the premise for so long that there's some biological thing that makes uh, you know, one of the things that they still study is um, bacterial vaginosis as a cause for preterm birth. Um, and as if, you know, bacteria know that your skin is black on the outside and mm-hmm. find your vagina and say, oh, we're going <laughs> to, it's just all these weird. This is a good place to be. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so when like black women have more preterm birth because they have more 
bacterial vaginosis. Like, what does that even mean? Uh, so there's just this whole, yeah. So undoing the, 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 the core belief in the biological basis of race infiltrates so many of our, um, of our strategies for improving outcomes. And so, and I know it because I participated in it. So I know it deeply, like I understand. So it fuels my work to even when I'm undoing it for myself mm -hmm. and thinking through the ways it shows up in my own um, identity, uh, then um, it's important to also have my fellow providers really think through all the ways that this idea of the biological basis of race shows up in our work. Cause it's like a constant, um, it is, it's all the time. It's hard to stop people. I mean, I was on a panel with an amazing woman who is the vice president of United Healthcare and she had all the right words. She was talking about racism and, you know, white woman. And she was a, three black women in her on this panel. And she was the first one to say racism and structural oppression. It was like, this is, we're going, we're going. So then one of the audience members asked her, well, what was United Healthcare doing to improve black birth outcomes? And she said, well, we're looking at sickle cells. <laughs> like, oh God. Like it's it's hard to like to not automatically go back to biology. I was like, you know, there are white people who have sickle cell, right? So if it even was that preterm birth was related to sickle cell, you wouldn't be able if you just looked think you can fix it through looking at people's skin. You would miss a whole bunch of white folks who then were having preterm birth because of sickle cell. So like untangling the things mm -hmm. that you associate with blackness. How has your work? influenced your role as mom? Mm. <laughs> oh, a whole lot. I mean, I think um, I have a 27-year-old daughter. So um, that's probably why I usually start with her as kind of the focus of my work. Um, I remember when I had her very vividly. And um, I worry that if she were to get pregnant today, where would I trust for her to go? I would probably just move in with her and go to all the appointments and make her move in with me. She's like, I know. You got to actually get a boyfriend or something. I don't know. We got, we got a ways to go to think about that. But, uh, You're planning far ahead. I am. I am. She knows that it worries me and it worries her. You know, she's been to many of my talks. She, she works for me. So she understands the language. One of her best friends is pregnant right now. And she was going to a doctor in New Orleans who seemed fine. And, um, but my daughter was like, you, my mom needs to find you a doctor. <laughs> and, so, and I got her a doula. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think for me, the work, uh, the, the, the need of, to understand um, that Black women are not protected uh, is, is super highlighted when I'm thinking about my own Black daughter and all the ways that Black women are not protected over and over and over again that 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 fuels my work and i think just trying to raise black boys uh to understand what patriarchy is and how that shows up um and um although you know white supremacy and racism are impacting their lives so does patriarchy and mm. um them really thinking about that so being explicit about that those are some very heavy <laughs> But it's, so it's my life. Right? My daughter Boulders was here to carry with you. <laughs> yeah, it was funny because my daughter was here visiting and she made a like a TikTok or Instagram or something. And she was like, take a shot every time my parents say racism. And in the background, we're both like on calls mm -hmm. <laughs> talking about it. So it's just the nature of our work that we do a lot. Yeah. 
my mother-in-law is now a retired judge, but my husband talks about how around his dinner, you know, dinner table conversations were around rape, murder, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all of the, and it mm-hmm. was, he didn't really know anything otherwise. Right. At the, <laughs> what did he at become? What did your husband do? He does marketing. So he did not, <laughs> clearly it had some impact on him. No, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I asked that because I, I'm curious about what happens with children when this, like some of them go deeper in and others are right. like, I just won't. I want to be puffy. Like I am not trying to participate in any of that. <laughs> right. They go on the other. They go on other the other. Train. They're like, this is too heavy. Right. Can we just, can we just live? All this is extra. <laughs> you said something a minute ago around how you remember the birth of your daughter so vividly mm-hmm. still now, 27 mm-hmm. years later. Exactly. What do you remember about that experience? Uh, how little I knew. You know, how little I knew. Ignorance is bliss, yes. I was just goofy, goofy, goofy. And every little thing, like I remember going to the last weekly appointment and telling my doctor, um, and he was like, okay, well, I'll see you next week. I was like, no, 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 I'm due Saturday. <laughs> I'm going to see you Saturday. And he was like, I remember his face. He looked so, so sweet. He was like, oh, Joya, that was just a guess. <laughs> I was like, what? what? we're not meeting at the hospital Saturday. So it helped me when I was practicing because I knew that people don't know that, right? So I knew, like, listen, a due date is just a guest. It can mm-hmm. come three weeks before, a week after, like, um, but just so little information I had. And so, but in some ways it was a little freeing because I, I didn't know. Right. Yeah, I didn't know anything. I was just like goofy and, um, yeah, it was just so many moments of like, but the the trigger for maternity care work, though, um, so much of it, um, how I was treated was because my mother worked at the hospital and she was the only um, black person kind of in the, um, uh, she's a pharmacist. So most mm-hmm. of black folks that worked there were either in like the uh, cleaning ladies or work in the cafeteria. So everybody loved Miss Carolyn. So they were all super nice to me because of their love for my mother at the hospital. And I recognize that everybody doesn't get that same. Like you shouldn't have to only be treated well because they like your mama. Right. Um, and many of my friends who went to that same facility were not treated as well. And so I'm aware of that. Um, I mean, even friends that I referred to the same doctor who was super nice to me and accommodating. I had no insurance. I have nothing. They were, I was goofy and young and silly. <laughs> and they, um, they, uh, and they all took really, they were really kind to me. Um, but we should be able to give that grace and see everybody in that same way, um, despite no matter what their income or status. So I know what it feels like to have privilege. Um, so I feel like everybody should get that. Wow. I could talk to you all day, but I know you have a jam-packed schedule, so I'll let you go. Thank you so much for taking right, the time you. today. All right, you have a good day. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Bridget Garsh, and this is Work Like a Mother. I'm excited to share another amazing Working Mama story with you next week. But before I go, I have a quick favor to ask. Please help us spread the word by giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way for more working moms to discover our show. Thanks, and have a great week. Thank you.